The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Oh, once again, I'm hoping my voice makes it through this evening, so. And I may have to dispense with this cough drop. <laughs> so, we are in uh, week two of a series on greed, hatred, and delusion, which of course means tonight we get to talk about hatred. But before you all run from the room, <laughs> um, what I really want to talk about is non-hatred. And the way that we get to that is by understanding what it is we're talking about when we say hatred. Um, yeah, hatred is kind of a harsh word. You know, who, who wants to admit to being hateful? I mean, that's a hard word, right? So I'm going to read you something I got in an email last week from Jack Cornfield. He has this mailing list that he sends out. And it's actually a reprint of something he wrote in 2004, which was also a presidential election year. I don't remember it quite as harsh as this year, but perhaps it was. Here's what he said. In this political climate, we are bombarded with propaganda from every political point of view that dulls the senses and overpowers our inner value system. Dulls the senses and overpowers our inner value system. Whatever our political perspective, we will encounter troubling images and feel anger, frustration, even outrage and impatience. If we stop and breathe and meditate, we will feel underneath these reactions our fear and under this our connectedness and caring. If our actions come from this deep sense of caring, they will bring greater benefit and greater peace. When we talk about greed, hatred, and delusion and letting go of these roots of suffering, what we're really talking about is how do we encounter these ways that we find these roots of suffering in our lives and how do we get to that place of peace. So that's what I'd like us to talk about tonight. So. I liked this particular quote from Jack because it directly talked about the roots of hatred, for example, and its antidote, which is cultivating compassion and peace in our hearts. That's, what, that's really where we want to go. When we talk about that triad of greed, hatred, and delusion, you know, people, they can kind of touch greed. Hatred is something that gets your attention really fast Everybody can point to something about hatred and say, oh yeah, I know about that. I noticed that. You know, this is about negative judgments, aversion, rejection, disdain. Ugh. We all know the crippling contraction around ill will. It just makes us feel bad. You know, when we're angry, we actually feel bad. It, it feels somehow not right. 
It is the condition that most separates us from other people. Anger, hatred, aversion, disdain, disgust separates us. There's an act of breaking any connection between us, any relation between us. It's gone. It's just they are the other and we're over here. And that separation causes misery. It causes misery in the relationship. It causes misery in us. And the persistence of it, we're also familiar with, through justification of why we're angry, irritated, disgusted, right? I mean, when you feel this, immediately you, you run to the reason that you're feeling this, and, and you build up the story around it, right? Yeah. Well, of course I'm feeling crummy like this. It's your fault, it's their fault. It's, the, it's because of this. It's this injustice. We have a justification system that is enacted almost immediately, almost as quickly as the reaction from the irritation or the anger. There's an, an inherently, though, we're sort of repulsed by anger. We don't really like anger. Not really. You know, angry, oh, that's an angry person, and that's kind of a negative comment about that person, even though we all experience anger. So, you know, why would we say that that person is bad because they're angry? When I'm angry, it's justified, right? None of us really wants to say that we live in an angry world. So, when I talk about an angry world, it's, it's kind of big, you know, and it's out there. And we don't have to actually take responsibility for all of that. And the reason that it's easier to talk about that anger, that angry world, that horrible discussion people are having, those horrible acts that are occurring, is that's outside of ourselves, and we don't. We can kind of push it over there, and and it becomes a surrogate for what's happening with us. And we, we, we kind of defend our own private angers. Those are much smaller, you know. It's it's not like we're beheading someone, right? We have our own personal angers, our personal injustices, um, self condemnations, you know. Well, you never should have done that. Right? Stress reactions that characterize our days. Somehow, we don't think of this as hatred. These are, I mean, these are things that happen to us, right? But these are actually incorporated in that whole condition that we call hatred. All of these irritations and annoyances And they hurt, you know? When we talk about anger, when we talk about hatred, I want to say this is a tender place. This is a tender place for all of us. It's not something outside of us. It's something that hits us hard. There's an emotional response that has a lot of energy in it and a big size, depending on what it is, you know? So... I, this morning, I uh, had to take my grandson to school. And before, he had his train set that took up an entire room. It was an enormous train set that he'd set up. And he said, oh, please come and play trains with me. So I went over and, to play trains with him. And I quickly learned that it did not mean that I should touch the track 
the train, or any of the implements around said track or trains. I should not move anything out of the box. I should not move anything within the range of the trains. My job was actually to be there as a witness for his story. But he calls it, come and play trains with me. Now, my reaction to this was, well, if you don't want to play with me, why did you ask, right? I mean, this is the first thought that comes up. And there's irritation and annoyance. And then once I realized what he wanted was attention to his story. Watch me play. Be part of my thing with me. And the annoyance went away because, you know, he's just a little three-year-old. And he's cute. And he's playing. And I get it. And, you know, I don't have to impose my will. But if I'm sitting around a dinner table and people are all talking and it becomes clear that my role is to pay attention to your story, that irritation doesn't go away quite so easily. Now, why is that? There's something else going on. I get irritated because you see me that I have to do this and I get triggered by oh, you're expecting of me that I disappear, but stand in your awe, right? So this is, this is a trigger for me. I get it, okay? And I get irritated. Well, that's interesting. Whereas with, with this little three-year-old, I don't have that same reaction. I don't have that same reaction because he doesn't threaten me in any way. I don't have a position to maintain, Nana is a pretty easy role to play. You know, it doesn't have a lot of requirements. So what, what I notice is that a lot of what comes up for irritation, annoyance, has to do with my own sense of self. My own sense of self. It has to do with fear of not being seen correctly, not being seen. All of these things are the stimulus that results in anger irritation, ill will. Exasperation, argumentativeness. Yeah, you can't say that to me. I, you know, I have a better argument. That is just wrong. And we, we find ourselves in the midst of a quarrel. There are many response types to, to anger. And they include, you know, arguing, quarreling, which is a little stronger form of arguing, insulting. This is good. We all know the great insults. Screaming and yelling, simmering and brooding. I'm going to, I'm just going to sit here and pout and be pissy, right? Or we suppress our anger, irritation, annoyance. I'm not going to let you know you're getting to me. <laughs> or we deny it. It isn't here. I'm not actually feeling this. Okay? So this is really, really important. We don't deal with anger by pretending it doesn't exist. We don't deal with hatred by pretending that I don't have hatred. I'm not that way. Because I don't want to be that way. I'm not that way is pretty much ignoring whatever is happening. And it's why I want to talk about those ways like exasperation, where it just happens. 
it's so common that we're pretty sure we know what it is. We condemn hatred. We, can, we condemn all the behaviors that have to do with exasperated, exasperation. But sometimes, by just naming it and pushing it away and condemning it, we're actually not paying attention to it in our lives. We're not paying attention to what's coming up for us. And we, therefore, fail to take advantage of the opportunity to, to learn how not, not, not to be that, not to have those reactions, not to be in the grip of anger and disgust and irritation because we're pretending it's not there. So we never get used to it. We never get good at figuring out how to be with irritation. We become dulled to its effect. Become dulled to its effect. So I read this week about a study that was done by uh, Tally Sherrott, a cognitive neuroscientist in London, University College London. And it had to, the, the story headline was, Small Lies Lead to Big Lies. And what they did was study, create conditions where they encouraged people to lie, deliberately tell a lie. And what they discovered was, once you start lying, it becomes easier to tell bigger and more lies. That this is a natural progression that happens. And what they did was measure it in the amygdala, the part of the brain that is... Uh, responsible for immediate reactions, emotional responses, and they could literally measure changes as a consequence of telling these lies, and larger changes with larger lies, we actually normalize the condition of lying. We normalize the condition of anger and irritation, and, and we stop noticing it. Now, I've spent some time trying to figure out, trying to be present when I'm irritated. I'll notice I'm irritated. I don't want to be irritated. I don't like me when I'm irritated. I don't like to not like me. I'm, un, I'm uneasy. I'm restless. And there's this grinding feeling. I'm irritated. I'm irritated. And the more I say to myself, I'm irritated, the worse it gets because I'm reinforcing it. But if I can just stick with that agitation and notice the agitation and stop trying to name it or justify it or figure out what it's responsible for or what's responsible for it, but just notice I'm really agitated today. I need to be careful because I'm agitated. It's a little different take on what's happening in the moment. If you don't rush to name it something that you could then put in a box, put it on the shelf, you're less likely to reinforce it, to normalize it. Oh, well, of course I'm irritated. I haven't had coffee yet, right? We have a built-in excuse. Well, I haven't had my coffee. One of the things that becomes easy, very apparent when you study anger, irritation, disgust, is that there's a lot of surrogate activity. What I mean by that is sometimes we get angry instead of paying attention to what else is happening. Sometimes we get irritated because 
Something's happening that isn't what we want, and it's easier to, be, to say, oh, there you go, doing that thing again, which really irritates me, and I'm really angry about it, don't you? When it's really something else that I'm uncomfortable with. But unless we're able to just stay with the agitation, we never notice what the other thing is because we've substituted anger for it. And anger, yeah, okay, we understand anger, and we have a well-worn path for how to deal with this emotion and this, you know, deal with, I don't mean make it go away, although that may be a strategy, but basically it's familiar. So we step into a familiar place instead of paying attention to what's going on here, right here now. What is this about? What am I afraid of? What am I, how am I feeling threatened? Why am I feeling unsafe? We, we never get to the point where we notice that because we get distracted by our response, which is a response of anger, disgust, irritation, annoyance. Oh, that's interesting. So there are two words that are associated with hatred and aversion in Pali. The, the Pali word for aversion is patiga. And it means striking as against. It's resistance, rejection, destruction. I'm going to make it go away. This is the aversion. So the Pali word is get rid of it. And, and there's, there's a, uh, a physical feeling to it, you know, that a striking against. I'm, I'm, really, I'm fighting it. Okay? So there's a fighting that has to do with aversion. I don't like this. I'm going to make it go away. Dosa, on the other hand, which is translated as hatred, has all the mental states of aversion, fear, condemnation, violent rage, irritation, annoyance. So the hatred part, the dosa, the word dosa, has to do with this I'm uncomfortable part. The aversion is what I do with that discomfort. Both of these things are part of what we talk about when we talk about hatred in this context of greed, hatred, and delusion. These are the things that we want to, these are the roots of suffering that we want to eliminate in our lives. So it's useful to kind of think about what's going on here. Is this aversion? I'm trying to push something away. Or is this a mental state of aversion that is fear, condemning, because one is very active and the other, you're still in a state where you can make a decision about something. With discernment, when you see this is happening, there's still time to make a choice. So there are a number of things I want to say about anger and hatred. The first one is, it's painful. <laughs> it's painful. It literally hurts. You know, when I'm angry, I notice what it feels like in my body. And it is a feeling, not only an emotional feeling of discomfort, but a physical feeling of discomfort in my body. My stomach gets tight. My jaw gets hard. I, I feel this crunching feeling and a closing in feeling and a shutting down feeling and a hardening feeling. This is all painful. These are painful images, physical manifestations of anger. 
Why would I deliberately do this? We don't often think about anger as a painful response to something that's happening. You know, we sort of, anger is something we blame, you know. Anger is blameworthy, right? But remember what I said before about it being a tender place? It's actually a place that we're hurt. There's, there's, some, there's pain associated with this. Whatever has caused anger to arise, it's here and it just feels crummy. It's often related to fear and self-identity. I'm afraid something's going to happen. Right? I'm afraid something bad is going to happen. And I'm, ooh, boy, that, that is frightening. And right away, I'm, I'm worried about it. And I'm building up energy around this feeling of fear this feeling of being threatened, this feeling of not being seen. How often do we get angry simply because nobody's paying any attention at all? I'm here in the room and I might as well be somewhere else. Oh, oh. I don't have to respond with anger. If I understand what's happening, if I notice what's happening, if I see, oh, this is me feeling unseen. Now, I still might think that it's unjustified and that I'm justified being irritated about it, but now I've got a little distance from the reaction. Now I understand what it is, and I have more likelihood that I am going to feel compassion for myself. Compassion for myself allows me to get in touch with the fact that this is painful and not lash out with the aversive action of striking against it, resisting it, pushing it away, fighting. There is a space that I have a choice in. It's conditioned. And what I mean by that is anger breeds anger, <laughs> which you've probably noticed. If you erupt at somebody, they erupt back. Somebody erupts at you, you erupt back. There is, there is a, when anger is in the room, when ill will is in the room, you're more likely to get angry. This is why noticing irritation is so important, because when you notice the irritation, you can be aware of it before it graduates into anger, disgust, removal of all the obstacles. When we keep ill will in our mental makeup, and what I mean by that is if we sort of adopt an idea of judgment, a condition of judgment, we're setting ourselves up for more of the same. What, what we think about is what happens. So when I notice that I'm telling myself lots of stories, when I notice, I can back down from retelling those stories. When I'm not noticing it, I keep telling the stories and I keep getting angry about something. So tonight on the way here, it's a dark and rainy night, right? 
And uh, my GPS sent me off on uh, an unfamiliar route. And I was in the place in Redwood City that was, uh, was very dark. There were no streetlights. It was raining. There was no traffic. Uh, it was unfamiliar, and I realized, oh, I have to make a left turn here. And I turned. And just as I turned, a black woman, dressed entirely in black, came running out of a side street because it was raining. She was trying to not get wet, I assume. And there we were. Now, we actually never got that close to one another, but both of us were very frightened because we were on a collision course. She didn't pause at the corner. I was just turning. There were no other lights. There were no cars. I was not paying that much attention. She wasn't at the corner. I quickly looked at the corner. Okay, so first what I saw on her face was fear. She was frightened. And it changed like that to anger. She was really angry. For which I don't blame her. <laughs> and my feeling was... Oh, thank God I didn't hit her. And I don't judge her for being angry. I understand that reaction. I could have hit her easily. I don't know what her experience was. All I know was what was on her face. And, and I, it hasn't left my mind. I think about it. I've been thinking about it. That's why it came up in this... In, the, in this context, is realizing, oh, that was, that was so frightening. It was so scary. It was not, there was no fault. There was no intention on either of our parts to do something foolish. And there we were in this condition. So... Noticing how frightened I was, watching her face frightened anger, I certainly never went to the place of being angry that she didn't even pause at the corner and was running in a dark street and there was no way I could have seen her. You know, I could come up with a justification story about why I am angry that I almost hit her because I was frightened. Okay. This, this is how it works. It's, this, it's a, a well-traveled road. When we feel frightened or stopped by something, we very quickly want it not to be true, and we tell ourselves a story about it. And we blame someone for it. We blame ourselves. We blame someone else. Oh, I should have gone more slowly. You know. But the truth is, I was going very slowly, and we didn't collide. And all I'm talking about is fear, being frightened. But it can escalate into something where I, you know, blame myself for weeks. <laughs> we do this. We do this. And it grows with repetition. The more often we do it, the more likely we are to do it. Uh, in the case of this car, uh, well, I just stuck with, the, with feeling frightened. I got it. I was frightened. And I saw the anger in her face. And what happened for me is I felt compassion for her fear, for her, 
for her anger. Yeah. So, so that switch happened before I got to the point where I started telling the story. Okay. Um, the other thing about anger is it can be addictive. It can be addictive. There are several reasons that it, it is addictive. One of them is that anger is quite energetic. And some people become quite familiar with that energy. It feels good. You feel vibrant and alive. <laughs> you, have, you have purpose. I have a purpose. I am fighting justice. And it feels really energetic. And boy, I love that energy. It can be quite addictive. And we lose sight of the fact that even when I was talking about it, did you notice my hand was gripping and it's in a fist and it's tight, that energy? And we pay attention to the energy and don't pay attention to the fact that the hand is gripped and tight and hurts. It's where we put our attention. But you have to notice it first. You have to notice it. Ironically, we feel powerful when we're angry. Now, I say ironically because often it comes from a place of fear and feeling not seen and, and there's, there's a, an emptiness there. And so we can fill it up with this anger. We can fill it up. It feels good. It feels powerful. There's a sense of protection and defense. Oh, I feel good about that. Uh-huh. I, I can fight back. I can fight back, right? Or there is, uh, it, it will mask a sense of helplessness. If I'm yelling at you, I'm not helpless. Really? We have a masquerade going on here. Sometimes it has to do with emotional reactivity. Revenge. Do you have revenge fantasies? Hmm. You know, somebody cuts you off in traffic, I hope he gets a ticket. We want the other person to feel what we feel. I remember something, uh, there was a, uh, I was part of a group, and a bunch of us went out to celebrate a birthday party. And unfortunately, I made the reservation. And I made a reservation for X number of people. And it turned out, and there were, you know, Y number of people that possibly could have come to this. But, you know, people drop out all the time. Well, Y number of people couldn't come. And those people who were above X felt that I personally had slighted them and they were quite angry with me. And they wanted me to feel as badly as they felt, which I found a really strange reaction. You know, all I'd done is make a reservation. And I guaranteed all those reservations, by the way, which meant I would have had to pay for them, not knowing who was coming. But the reaction that came from people was, you hurt me and I hope you feel really bad. Wow, that's really amazing. And it's a way of, of turning around. My pain is going to become your pain. And it's a, 
not quite seeing that we're, we're in this together, right? We're in this together. Sometimes there's a, a misunderstanding and we think that uh, anger be, is a, a kind of, is a source of, we justify it as a source of power. And so people say, well, you know, you need anger to fight injustice. I don't think so. I think you need energy to fight a- injustice. But anger isn't actually going to help you. Anger hurts, dulls the senses, deludes the mind, doesn't make you sharp in how you respond against injustice. And yet people persist in thinking it takes a little anger to fight back against injustice. No. No, it actually doesn't. It's a, it's a, a fallacy that people repeat over and over again. I've heard lots of Buddhist teachers maintain this. A little anger is good. No, non-hatred is good. Non-hatred. Sometimes it's supported by the delusion of righteousness. So it turns out that a lot of it has to do with my view. You know? I have facts, you are deluded. My view. My view is right. My view is good. In order for my view to be good, yours has to be bad. This breaking things into black and white, separate, different, you're different from me, is very dangerous. It becomes, because we normalize it. We think this is normal when we actually have much more in common than we do uncommon to, to each other. But we tend to really focus on those things that are different. It is heart-hardening. One of the best ways to deal with irritation, aggravation, exasperation is to look into softening one's heart. Because you can't hold them in the same space. In fact, that's one of the sources of pain, is to realize that your heart is hard and rigid instead of being open and loose. So what do we do about it? There are many things that that we do, that we can do. One of them is to not stop with the first reaction or the first answer. Okay, I'm irritated, (sighs) must be your fault. Or, I'm irritated, oh, this is, I thought I'd overcome this particular bad habit. Instead of, I'm irritated, you know, I didn't get enough sleep last night. But we're we're off on this, this pattern of thinking. The pattern of thinking leads us to something that is negative and not helpful, not skillful, not wholesome. We have views, they are wrong and evil, they are ignorant and deluded, they are scary and reckless, and they have the same thoughts about us. (laughs) So what do we do? 
Mindfulness is one of the things. Paying close attention and saying, what else is happening here? What is, what's, what's, what's really happening here? In the Anapanasati Sutta, they point to the observation of impermanence. That impermanence is the basis for dispassion, cessation, and relinquishment. Dispassion means I'm no longer hooked by it. Sensation says, since I'm not hooked, I'm not tied with it. And, I, and relinquishment, I let it go. Thoughts come and go. Thoughts arise. We're not necessarily responsible for our thoughts, but we're responsible for grabbing onto them and turning them into a story. Okay? So the thought arises... Oh, I hope something bad happens to you. Well, no, I don't really. Or, I hope something bad happens to you when you start imagining all the possibilities. Well, you could drop egg on your lap. You know, all the things you can imagine that are simple or not so simple. With discernment, we can actually decide. So, in response to your question, when I saw the the, the fear and the anger on her face, I could have responded with anger, but it was watching that, that seeing, first seeing that she was frightened in, opened my heart before I saw the anger reaction. So I didn't respond with anger, I responded with compassion to her fright. Had I not focused on that and only saw the anger, something else might have happened. Some other thoughts might have arisen. One of the things we have to do is recognize what our triggers are. What are our triggers? You know, there was, there was a wonderful card that I saw at Spirit Rock one time that I truly loved. I finally gave it to someone, but I kept it for years, and it said... Of course your family pushes all your buttons. They installed them. Know what your triggers are. If one of your triggers is not being seen, know what that feels like. Know when it's activated. Notice it. Because then you can discern what is the right thing to do in this moment. If you know one of your triggers is rejecting authority, know that. If somebody comes up and stands over you and this is frightening to you, know this. Don't pretend it's not true. Figure out what your trigger is. You know, when, when you live with someone a long time, you, you know what your triggers are and what their triggers are. Hmm? Know when you're acting somebody else's trigger. See it. There are things I do. I watch my husband's face, and I'm thinking, ah. turned out one of the things I discovered early in our relationship was it totally drove him crazy if I would say, would you like to take out the garbage? His response was, no, I would not like to take out the garbage. I had no idea how much this irritated him. I mean, really angered him for me to say, would you like to do whatever it was? And I was just trying to, you know, not be daggy, not be, 
I was trying to be gentle. And I learned it was better for me to say, would you take the garbage out, than would you like to take the garbage out? Something about that phrasing drove him through the ceiling. Know what the triggers are for the people in your life and your own self. I mean, that was a pretty easy change for me to make. There was something about that phrase that, you know, who knows where he picked it up. Maybe from his mother. Who knows? Notice what the energy behind your emotions is. This is the easiest thing for me. I pay a lot of attention to the energy as I go through my day. You know, is it irritated? Is it peaceful? Is it high? Is it low? Am I low energy? Low energy means that when I react with somebody, I'm not going to be quick. Usually, I'm too quick with most people, and that's irritating to them. Pay attention to your energy level. It has a lot to do with how you're presenting yourself in the world. Notice, one of the things, one of the ways that I have controlled anger for me is to notice the energy that arises with anger and recognize it as energy. It doesn't, it's nothing but energy. There's the emotional response and there's the energy. The energy is there. I don't like the anger, but I got to do something with that energy. I don't have to yell. I can do something else with that energy. One of my favorite things is to wash my hands. Sort of, it, it lowers the energy level. These, these are things that are, that are easy to do, that don't have to do with anything. It, it doesn't reify anger. It's recognizing that there's the trigger, there's the emotional response, and there's the energy that goes with it. And all of these are, are tools that you can use to come up with a skillful way of being in the world. One question to ask is, how am I relating to this emotion? Am I pushing this emotion away? And is my mind spacious enough for that emotion to be there and not try to make it into something else? Being present for your own emotions is extremely important. It's just an emotion. It's not who you are. But trying to push it away or pretend it's not there is not useful. It's not useful. I'm feeling this way. The buck stops here. This is just a feeling. And it's an uncomfortable feeling. Learn how to be with an uncomfortable feeling without requiring it to change. It'll change. It's when we think we can control it some way that we get into trouble. One of the most important things is to understand empathy. Empathy. So there, there's, uh, Paul Ekman is a, uh, a professor emeritus in psychology at UCSF, and he's written a lot of, he's a very well-known a behavioral psychologist. And he has spoken a lot about empathy, and he says there's three kinds of empathy. So the first one is cognitive empathy. That has to do with 
knowing what someone else is, uh, what someone else's emotional responses are. So I know that you're angry, recognizing you're feeling insecure. I know you're feeling insecure. This is cognitive empathy. It is sometimes called perspective taking. So you take the perspective of the other person. It's very useful in negotiations. Okay, I can see you're feeling threatened by this. This is not going to go. Or I can see uh, there's more room here for this negotiation because I haven't reached your limit. I can see you're not at your limit, right? Okay, so this is, um, this is cognitive. It, it's somewhat detached, okay? The second one is, um, let's see, cognitive. The second one is emotional empathy. In this case, you feel the other person's emotions, right? So someone's angry with you, you feel angry, or you notice uh, this person is sad, and so you know, there's someone you really care about, and so you feel sad. So this is emotional empathy. So where you, where you actually, you not only know what the other person is experiencing, but you experience it also. The third kind of empathy is you know what this person is experiencing, you feel it, and it results in a compassionate response from you. A compassionate response. So you go beyond, I'm feeling what you're feeling, and actually evoke something new. This is what leads to caring. To understand empathy in your life, to notice what you know about people when you encounter them, is a very useful skill. It's particularly useful for dealing with the negative emotions of aversion, hatred, irritation, annoyance. If you can see the other person and understand, see what they're feeling, and know that you can also feel that, you're much more likely to have a compassionate response than a rejecting response. You're less likely to move to the place of you're wrong. You're more likely to say, you're wrong about this, but we're both walking on two feet, we're both in this room, we're both here for some reason. And we see, we begin to experience the similarities with someone so that we can disagree about something without rejecting them as a person. It doesn't escalate to total hatred. This is a very important skill to do, to, to develop in oneself. We see the difficult people in our lives as people who want to be happy just like we want to be happy. Just that, just I see you and you want to be happy just as I want to be happy. When you can look someone in the face and know that, you see them in a different way. They do not become an other. They do not become evil incarnate. When you can say, I know you, just like me, you want to be happy. Just like me, you want to be happy leaves a possibility for many more things, like, oh, I wish I could make you happy. <laughs> or, wow, you probably, you know, have a family. <laughs> you monster you. Huh. 
It's hard to see someone as a monster when you recognize a core so, so intimate as, oh, you just want to be happy. I get it. I get it. We let go of our need to be special. You know, we all have a need to be special. I'm special, and therefore I'm right. <laughs> How badly do you need to be right? This is, this is a skill that I've, I've really been working on in the last year. Um, is this really important? So uh, my husband had a stroke last December. He's doing very well, so that's not an issue. He's totally recovered. But what's interesting is when he tells the story... It's just not what happened. <laughs> he was out of it, you know. How does he know what the story is? But he tells the story. And I found myself constantly correcting him, which, as you can imagine, made him furious. After all, it was his story. And suddenly, I, it came to me, what does it matter? Whether he went to the bathroom before or after he had his stroke. What does it matter? Who does it matter to? My need to be right, I saw my need to be right was just getting in the way of everything and was so foolish, so foolish. Self-importance, the need to be right, ask yourself, is this going to be important 100 years from now? How about next week? Is it going to be important? How about tomorrow? Is it going to be important? Choose where you make your stand. Not everything has the same importance in life. And the most important thing is hatred never ceases by hatred. By non-hatred alone do quarrels end. Any meeting of aversion, anger, annoyance with aversion, anger, annoyance just reinforces it. See, see your part in it. See that by yelling back, it's only escalated. See when you yell back, ah, ah. see that it didn't help. See that maybe some of that energy was dissipated, but maybe there's a better way to dissipate that energy. Some of that hurt, there's been, you've struck back. But what difference does it really make? Hatred never ceases by hatred. Never. Every time we get angry, we're practicing anger. Every time we step back, we're practicing stepping back. Every time we see the other person as like us in any way at all, we are practicing generosity and openness. What we practice is what will arise because it's what we notice.
Every action is a practice. Sometimes we're good at it, and sometimes we're not so good at it. Sometimes we meet our intention, and sometimes we don't meet our intention. Okay, that's really not what I wish I was doing. Next time, I resolve again. I resolve again. I have compassion for this person who is trying so hard to be true to her own heart. I see that you also want to be true to your own heart. How can I hate you? There's not room. We can practice non-hate. We can't push away hate, but we can practice non-hate, the act of not hating. So I'm going to read you a poem by uh, David Stendhal Rast. He's a, a German Christian cleric. And he wrote a whole series of uh, poems on, on grief and joy and tears. And this is called Tears Number 28. You bless us with tears, tears of sorrow and tears of joy, tears of outrage and tears of overwhelming beauty. May I let them flow freely especially as the waters rise up when the ice of anger cracks and thaws in my heart and the flood ties of an oceanic feeling deep in my heart that wash my eyes from within and make me gentle toward others. You bless us with tears, tears of sorrow and tears of joy, tears of outrage and tears of overwhelming beauty. May I let them flow freely, especially as the waters rise up when the ice of anger cracks and thaws in my heart, and the flood ties of an oceanic feeling deep in my heart that wash my eyes from within and make me gentle toward others. May the ice in your heart crack and flood you. May you have tears of joy and release, and may you be happy. Thank you. So we have a couple of minutes for questions, comments, rotten tomatoes. I accept rotten tomatoes. Could I just make one brief comment? Uh the poem just said it, what I was trying to say in, on many levels, but one thing I did want to say was that um, I always want to say when people talk about anger that I like angry people. <laughs> I'm not, and so, but I like angry people. When I understand why I like angry people, it's because I think part of me recognizes that that energy of angry people, there's a capacity for tenderness in it. There is a capacity. And I think that's what I sense and why I like them. And then the poem kind of sort of described that process. 
Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I bet you like angry people better when they're not angry at you. Um, people don't get angry at me, but that's because... Um, it's not that I don't get angry, but I, I get angry in a completely different way that you, than you do, which is interesting, but that, that yeah. would take more time to uh -huh. describe. Uh -huh. I'm sure you'd have some insight into it, but... I mean, that, that clenched feeling you have, that's the really unpleasant feeling I feel when I'm trying to convince myself I shouldn't be angry and that I'm not angry and that it's really my fault and nothing bad has happened. See, I'm a greedy type, and maybe that's this why. Is this is this self-condemnation. I do selfing. Yes. Self yeah. Then when I finally, like in the poem, that, that what people say is the experience of anger, when I finally get angry, okay, the ice breaks, it's, it's a warm feel. It's almost like when you... It actually feels good. It's like when you're all, all stopped up and finally your sinus is clear. <laughs> it, it's short-lived. And I might even um, express myself in a sort of way or say something about my needs, something I have an incredibly difficult time doing. Mm -hmm. But I won't lash out. And in fact, if someone gets angry at me, I'll go into full retreat. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a different thing, but I think there's still probably the same amount of suffering in it. It's just uh, different. So... <laughs> Great, thank you. Yeah. Anyone else? It's nine o'clock. Next week, delusion. Yes. Um, well, I do some shadow work and do EFT. <laughs> do like you know, mm -hmm. even though I'm so angry and and so I'm trying to like fit this all together, and I think. I figured out that, you know, sometimes you've already gone past that point. Yes. And you're angry, and you can't go back and pretend you're not angry. But you're just saying there's space that before it gets over, like, the point of no return, where you can make a choice and say, all right. Even, even. Or notice. Even still. I mean, it's, it would be lovely to notice before. But in the throes of anger, realize that there is energy and it's being dissipated. And it only increases when you keep telling yourself the story mm -hmm. that justifies the anger in the first place. When you stop the story, literally just stop the story, the anger goes away. It is not sustained. The, the energy may still be there. But now it's something else. It's not anger anymore. It's something else. So part of this is a language issue about what you, how you describe these feelings and these responses. And whatever triggered the emotional response was triggered by something that happened. And in the absence of that trigger... It is not sustained. And the way we keep that sustained is we keep telling ourselves the story about why I'm angry. And we add to it, you know, well, you do this all the time. Or, uh, uh, 
How can these people say this about these other people? How can they feel this way? Now, my husband and I have this discussion all the time about uh, whether or not men and women view the relationships between men and women the same way. And I maintain that we both grew up in a particular society where women have this role and men have that role. And even if we intellectually believe something different, psychologically, unconsciously, we are both buying into the way we were brought up. And unless you can see that happening, you don't understand what some people do. And you misinterpret it. The same behavior... Um, now, through with some stories, but but there there are ways that uh, I was I once managed a big organization, and my behavior, my exact behavior if I were male, would have been accepted completely, and because I was female, was not accepted, because I did not fit the model of how a woman should behave. It had nothing to do, intellectually, there was not an issue, but emotionally, psychologically, there was an issue. It was just hard. Nobody Nobody is a bad guy in this scenario. So being aware of this is what's happening can be freeing because you don't have to keep telling the story. You're just anti-woman, for example. You don't have to keep telling the story. The anger is dissipated. Sadness may still be there, but it becomes something else. Thank Thank you all. Good night.